The Koi Gig Pod. I then had to then fake an injury because I didn't want to tell people that I was pregnant until the 12 weeks gone. That's, it's mad to think of really, it seems kind of archaic. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. Football on Off The Ball. With Sky. The Premier League is back. Watch every live game for the rest of the season on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports. I'm prepared to end it my can well, to play it, country again. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Welcome along to the football show here on Off The Ball on Sunday evening in Saudi Arabia as part of the deal where the Spanish Super Cup is going to be played in the Gulf State until 2029. Barcelona won their first trophy in the post-Messi era and their first trophy under Xavi as well, beating their old rivals Real Madrid by three goals to one in a pretty utterly dominant performance. Delighted to say to look back on the game now, we're joined by Graeme Hunter, our man in Spain. Graeme, how are things? Well, everything's grand. Thank you very much indeed. It was a decent match. Oh, that was a very good match, a very good performance, particularly by Barcelona. Xavi made a tactical change which worked, which is the four players in midfield. So Busquets maybe needing a little bit extra cover. De Jong played beside him. Uh, Gavi played essentially as an inside forward over on the left and Pedri played in a slightly different position on the right. Dembele kept the width on the right-hand side and that allowed them pretty much to dominate Real Madrid's midfield from mm-hmm. the start. No, I see it differently. I think you're right that he went for 3-4-3 in possession of 3-4-3 attacking. And so long as you judge that the off-the-ball audience is interested enough in this, then I saw it differently from you. Gavi um, played on the right. It's true that with the breaks that he made, often you could see him um, creating down the left. So for Lewandowski's goal, the ball comes off Gavi's left foot from the left of the penalty area. And um, for Pedri's goal, the way that Gavi breaks, um, he had the freedom to play uh, when they were on the break where it was important to be. But in terms of the formation, the four was made up really rather of Alex Balde, the 18-year-old fullback, left-back, who was in in place of Jordi Alba, playing whenever Barcelona were either pressing for possession, in possession or attacking. Balde played in midfield. It became three at the back. And often, um, when Dembele was in midfield, rather than the wide winger in a 4-3-3 that we're used to seeing him, and we're used to seeing Guardiola and Luis Enrique and Tito Villanova when he was alive, and and now Xavi, spreading their arms and telling the wingers to to open the pitch. It wasn't like that at all when Barcelona were defending. They were often 4-4-2. In the second half, there were large chunks in their 4-4-2. And the man who was off Lewandowski was Pedri. And um, it, it was an unusual... Not, they, under Xavi, they have reverted to this 3-4-3 that when Guardiola played it at, at Barcelona as coach, he didn't like it. When Johan Cruyff's dream team regularly played 3-4-3, it left them exposed at the back. And it's something that Xavi used, in my opinion, specifically to try and dominate Madrid's tiring, tired, ageing midfield. He judged will that Ancelotti's men would be would be second to things, second to challenges, second to decision making, second to aerial challenges. And if you you opened on what was different about Xavi's idea in this final that they won comfortably, to see the ball being punted long regularly by Mark Andre Ter Stegen from by kicks, from free kicks, and from open play, and for Arujo less regularly, but still to punt the ball along. These things were utterly forbidden 
not that long ago uh, at Barcelona. They were the cause of enormous furore. In fact, they were they were prohibido, completely verboten under Pep Guardiola. And they were used for a, a reason under Xavi because Xavi's argument to his players was, if we punt the ball long and Madrid win it aerially, we'll win the second ball. We'll pounce on it when it comes. When Militao or Rudiger knock, one, you compete with them, you jump with them. So you had this, the, 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 the sight of five foot seven Gavi jumping against six foot two Militao and occasionally winning and then winning a second jump against Benzema immediately. It was remarkable. But when the ball came down from a Real Madrid-headed uh, challenge where they won it, Barcelona's players were on the loose ball, the 50-50 ball, or on a Real Madrid man in position like hungry dogs. And that tipped the apple cart well. Is there a certain element here, I've heard suggested that Xavi the player might not have necessarily liked Xavi the coach and his tactics, but is this down to Xavi... <laughs> being slightly more practical maybe than some of us would have thought because he had a very rigid way of thinking about the game as a player but he's shown himself to be quite adaptable in his first coaching gig and now at Barcelona as well. You're spot on and he doesn't really like the way that this is talked about at the moment. I think one, he's a bit fragile about being... He wouldn't call it an agent of change. He would say that the, the, the fundamental philosophies and really honestly, if you watched the clip that Rio Ferdinand promoted on Twitter which was of the UK TV coverage showing a 44-pass move where every Barcelona player touches the ball and the passes are quick and Rubin can't get near him. If you were to judge by that alone, you'd say, well, Xavi hasn't touched the fundamentals well. Excuse me. <coughs> but in everything else, he is being pragmatic. He is being modern. And that lumping the ball long against Atleti the week before when they won 1-0 in the Metropolitano, when the ball was played over Ronaldo's head so that Dembele could chase, which was a different use of, of the longer ball. But again, it was something that you, were, you, you never saw in previous years at Football Club Barcelona. When he explained it, there was a slightly defensive tone, Well, because um, there are hawks here, whether they're ex-players, they're the media or fans, we just don't recognise and don't accept the idea. But you are right that Xavi is gradually saying, <coughs> <coughs> do pardon me, when the situation calls for it, when um, we've got Lewandowski playing, and when we're playing against a side which is ageing or is slow or plays a very high line, sometimes it's necessary to be more direct. And it's odd to witness. And for example... I don't think it would have any kind of similar effect in the tie against Manchester United, which is coming up in a month um, in the Europa League. But against Madrid, I genuinely believed it, it was applied specifically because Xavi believed that particularly in the state they're in right now, Madrid couldn't cope. And he was proven absolutely correct. So it was a spectacular success for him thinking in his little tactical laboratory, here's how we should play. Here's how it will make um, Madrid uncomfortable. And this is how we can benefit. And for coaches, when that comes off, the satisfaction is high. But when you tell your players, this is what we're going to do and this will happen, it, it, it wins you extra loyalty, extra admiration. And it, and it should earn Xavi, whether Xavi the player would have liked it or not. Well, you're right. <laughs> it should add him. It should gain him a little bubble of time and space to continue to be both pragmatic and to innovate a little bit. 
things are particularly uncomfortable for Vinicius Jr. Again, Araujo is the man who's been given the task of going over to the right-hand side to stop him. Now, Madrid at different times, especially when Camavinga came off and Felipe Valverde played in a different position, he was given space to roam. But particularly in the first half, and Jules Koundé provided a lot of cover as well uh, from the right-centre-back position, Araujo was able to do a very good specific job on Vinny Jr. when he's put on him. Same as the Bernabeu last season too. I think in, in every uh, classical, including the one in Las Vegas, where um, Araujo has been moved to right back, not because that's a way to let Kunde in at centre-half, which is his preferred position, but as you pointed out, to specifically man-mark Vinicius and match him for pace. The results in total are 4-0, 1-0 and 3-1 in Barcelona's favour. And in none of the games has Vinicius really been... Identifi- identifiably himself. In Las Vegas, it, it was a much more, I don't know if you remember that 1-0 trap for Barcelona where Rafinha scored in the preseason friendly, but it was a much more even battle. And Vinicius uh, made Araujo uncomfortable, but they can match each other for pace. Araujo is a warrior, which not every current Barcelona player is at all. And on Sunday night, while you're right, the tactic was the same, there were a couple of things to be noted. One, there was a horrendous challenge, which the referee chose not to book after about five or six minutes when Vinicius, already just off the pitch, gets cut right through. <laughs> you know, Haroko comes through him. In a challenge that if it had been in open play in the middle of the pitch, the referee would have had absolutely no option but to book him. Whether it's because it was early and, and, and this referee, although young, is of the old school about like, you all get one go each. Or whether it was because it was just off the pitch, it was a bookable foul. And it marked the territory earlier on. And I'm not saying Vinicius was scared or hid, but he, like the rest of the team, is a little bit off form. It was a different formation for Madrid because although they often play Valverde in a in a role that oscillates like, like Pedri's and Gabby's between midfield and attack, and, and it often functions, in this instance, Vinicius wasn't able to be tied to the wing and dragging a player out there and linking with Benzema in the same way. Effectively, Vinicius was a second forward playing off the nine. And it didn't it didn't click, it didn't work. He didn't really do anything that was identifiably special, which is what you get from Vinicius in almost every game over the last two seasons. Whether he's on form or not, whether the team's on form or not, you do get special moments and sometimes he dominate game, dominates games. And in this instance, it was a combination of Araujo playing really well, playing until his physical limit when he had to sit down and be be subbed off, which is a, a point when you know Barcelona's sphincters tighten noticeably because he has to be fit for the remainder of the season. When our, our, the difference of Barcelona with Araujo in the team or not is cataclysmically big. And on this day, he, he did his job until he could not do it anymore, by which time the game was won and Vinicius was subdued. Of the free transfers the Barcelona have made, um, some of them are probably going to be even further sold on with Kessier being linked with a move away and maybe Memphis Depay will go to Atletico Madrid. Has it turned out that Andres Christensen may well have been the best free signing they've made? Because we all kind of expected that Araujo and Koundé were going to be the two centre-back pairings. But then Christensen has had some really good performances in big games. You mentioned the Atletico game a couple of Sundays ago where Christensen played really well. I thought he was very assured at the weekend. Christensen seems to be fitting in quite nicely there. No, I agree with your your entire premise, except for when the season began, he he wasn't yet, in my opinion, fully ready for what was being demanded of him. It's it's also the case that he came into a team which was very green, 
where new pieces were being fitted together and his display in the power play when Bayern Munich, having been, I mean, people who didn't watch this game and who now know that Barcelona are out of the Champions League will either have to take my word for granted or else, unless you watched it too, Barcelona fundamentally outplayed Bayern Munich in Bavaria in the group game, lost, mm. didn't take their chances, and they made a heap of chances. They should have categorically have won, even though Bayern scored twice. And in the, set, in the first goal, it's Marcus Alonso's uh, fault, but in the second goal, it's patently Christensen's fault. And the comparison between the Dane then and now, as you say, is gigantic. He looks positionally assured. Whether he plays next to Arujo, which I think is his preference, or Koundé, there's a, there's a partnership, there's movement whereby there's not a lot of dialogue needed between the two of them. Invincible? No, no chance at all. But I he looks like the guy who, when he's playing with QR for the national team, is impressive, where Denmark have consistently for the last few years punched above their weight. And I think your premise is right, that Christensen at the moment is giving enormous value for money. The staff are very, very satisfied with him. And from my take on it, he's not a natural left footer, but he's predominantly playing on the left of one of the two more dominant right-footed centre-halves, which will be Arujo or uh, Koundé in the cup. It might well be next to Eric Garcia, who barely gets a sniff now. Mm -hmm. And overall, you're right. The Dane has looked um, a calming influence, and he looked he looks as if he's understood both the club and what Xavi needs of him, and he's, he's becoming a mainstay. You're right. Was Sunday Gavi's best performance so far? I think a pit bull is what you compared him to just before the World <laughs> Cup. And he walked like he was the exact same at the weekend. He was at different times. He was hassling the Real Madrid midfielders. He had no problem going after Modric and Cruz in possession. And then when the ball was transitioned and turned around, he found himself in very effective positions. And what I thought was different maybe to Gavi last season, he got his head up and his passes for the two goals he set up were very, very clinical and very clever passes. I, I, again, I couldn't agree more. I think that pound for pound, there were some displays when Chavi was new in the job and Barcelona were very ragged. When this fiery... He, he's he's a force of nature. Chavi keeps saying that he's heart and lungs with legs and the ferocity with which he competes is magnificent to watch. And again, that's not echoed right throughout the Barca squad, nor throughout modern football. There are players from the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s who would utterly recognise Gavi in all his characteristics because he may be pint size and he definitely has modern skills and modern ideas about what to do with the ball. But, you know, Billy Bremner would have recognised him. John, John Giles would thoroughly recognise him. And, and Gavi can be nasty. And you talked about his his peripheral vision and his timing of the passes and, and the the power with which, particularly the ball to Lewandowski, the ball to Pedri was far easier, given that Cruz and Ceballos hadn't tracked Pedri and it, he just had to get it right. He had to work for the ball from the left to Lewandowski um, for the second goal and it, it was a sensational use of his left foot. He's slightly more powerful than his right foot. So the fact that both assists came off his left um, and, and his finish was good. His, his finish, although he was beautifully put through by Lewandowski, there was a little lift to get it beyond Courtois to Courtois' left. It, it was an exceptional game. And all I was going to say was that pound for pound, there were games 
when Barcelona were were rocky before they hit <coughs> ramming speed in January of twenty two, when Gavi wouldn't let a draw um, become a defeat when he turned draws into victories where he, he did look less refined and he was far more likely to be sent off. I don't know if you mm. spotted a, a nice one where Ceballos tugged his hair to try and get him to react and get him sent off. And first of all, Gabby looks to go and hook him and then sort of restrains himself. And then the Barca players are, are there for their man. And that's something that they've learned. Well, in, in recent months, Barcelona have been a timid team who it's in when it got physical or when there were arguments to be had, it wasn't all for one one for all. It is now, and they burled across to make sure that he, he didn't get suckered into a fight. But he held himself back. He checked himself. <laughs> Believe me, that's not his natural instinct. So on many levels, this was his most all round, his most mature performance for this kid. He's what 18, 19, 18? He's still eighteen. So if we're to look at this as let's say, the next generation of Barcelona. Is it a lazy comparison to compare them to Xavi and Iniesta, Pedri and Gavi as a pairing in midfield then? It, it depends what your comparison is saying. I mean, it, it's it's inevitable to compare them if you think about them to players with a slight age gap coming through together in midfield, all four of them being relatively modestly sized. The comparison's inevitable. It's not lazy at all. It's what you say then, I think, that become can become astute or, or lazy. One of the things that we know for absolute sure is that both of these guys have come through with a sang-froid, an assurance, and a power of emergence that beats even Xavi or Iniesta. Because while Xavi was precocious in how early Van Gaal debuted him away in a Super Cup, um, I think at Mallorca, it took several years and it took Rijkaard changing Xavi to what's called an interior, a right midf- an attacking right midfielder, rather than the pivotti that he was. And remember, Xavi said to Rijkaard, don't do this, I can't do that. He, he, he said he believed he couldn't play the position in which he won all his Champions Leagues, he won all his trophies for Spain, and he became, in my opinion, Spain's greatest ever footballer, in my opinion. Xavi couldn't see that change and was fearful of it by his own admission. And Iniesta, as brilliant as he was, and again, given a debut by Van Gaal away in Belgium um, in a group game in the Champions League that they'd, you know, Champions League group that they'd already conquered. By the time it came to the um, Champions League final against Arsenal, which I think was, what, 2006 six in yeah. Paris, Iniesta didn't start because Rijkaard believed more in Edmilson and Van Bommel. Now, in a Barcelona whereby um, there, there are urgent needs, first Koeman and, and now Xavi have trusted implicitly in these guys. They're both playing for Spain far earlier um, than, than Xavi and Iniesta. And it's it, where it would be crazy is to say these two will go on to equal or supersede Xavi and Iniesta because the latter part of their career, just like Cristiano Ronaldo played, I think, 28 Champions League games before scoring a goal. Yet he's by a distance the Champions League's greatest ever scorer. You you can't tell what will happen when the spurt comes or if it comes from 24 to 34. You, you just don't know. And with these guys, you, we can't know. What we can say is that so far, they're more prolific in what they're achieving and what they're doing. And both of them are far more confident and are more trusted than Xavi and Iniesta were at the, the exact same ages. And... Even that's saying something, isn't it, Will? 
It is. Um, I wonder if Frankie de Jong is going to be permanently in that midfield with them over the next decade. You mentioned the Manchester United game, which is coming up next month, and Manchester United fans were probably hopeful that de Jong will be wearing their colours in this game as opposed to <laughs> him still being at Barcelona. Um, he's been frustrated sometimes, Graham, when he's been taken off in games, and sometimes supporters have been disappointed that Xavi has taken him off at different times. But how is de Jong now fitting into that midfield this year? I know you didn't ask me this, but for me, he's been an acquired taste. I dislike some of the things that he's chosen to do with his development. Um, but I do admire the fact that he dug his heels in and said, I'm not leaving. And, I, and I've said this on, on the show over the months a lot, that a lot of the noise about the price and were Manchester United bidding enough or were Barcelona being greedy, the central fact, and I reported this to you guys as it was going on in the summer, De Jong never wanted to go. And people can say I didn't want to go to United or Ten Hag if they want, but that the case was different. It was a very crystal clear, I'm not leaving here. And I think, personally, that was for two different reasons. One, he and his fiancée love the lifestyle. And I think you're allowed, if you're an elite footballer, you're allowed to say, well, I like where I'm living. I've got a long contract. I'm not staying. But the second part of it, which I like more, was De Jong going, I'm not giving up on this. I wanted to play here. I'm not being bullied out, fair play. Every player with a contract and with you know a set of cojones is allowed to say that. And that's one of the areas where I, I, I think there has been development, but there wasn't. For the first couple of seasons, he remained pin thin. He, he was too much of a mourner when the ball was lost. Um, he, he, he didn't take, for example, you made comparisons between Iniesta and Xavi and, and the two kids of today. Iniesta is one whereby he, he, his top body strength throughout his career, developed dramatically so that he could hold players off and get a push, a sprint away, which is where some of his magic, magical dribbling came from. De Jong hasn't done that, in my opinion. There's not nearly enough gym time been applied to making him like Iniesta. I don't want him like Schwarzenegger, but it's evidently the case that he could develop more. For whatever reason, he hasn't. And there were times when he was a comedian, as they say here. He was he was being played all over the place because he could be. So Kuman had him at sweeper. There were some days when he had to double up at you know right right wing back. He wanted to be pivoty, and it didn't look like it was going to work. It looked like he was staying in vain. Recently, just about everything has changed. His ability to either support Busquets and what effectively in concept is a double pivoti, a forbidden phrase at Barcelona, but one that works quite nicely. His ability to play instead of Busquets, all of those have changed. The maturity, the increasing maturity of Gabi and Pedri around him has helped. His connection with Lewandowski has helped. His confidence has gone up. Xavi's idea about specifically how he wants the team to play, the idea that now, right now, not in the first part of the season, more often there's Kunde and Araujo behind the Dion. All of these things are helping turn the Dutchman into the player that Ten Hag saw and wanted back and that Manchester United wanted. And and he's now... The thing that, I, that you know, I'm a complainer, Will, I'm sorry. You knew that already. The thing I would say is that any club, not Barcelona, but any club that buys a man like that on the form that he was on when he left Ajax deserve to have these returns that they're seeing now a lot earlier. Well, does that mean if we're to take that there's a very strong chance that Busquets leaves Barcelona this summer, albeit Xavi has said the door is not closed as yet on a potential extension, that he could 
fit in as the pivot to replace Busquets in that position or is that still a little bit up in the air? I think that there's an absolute clarity from Xavi that they want to retain De Jong. And if his contract was running down right now, Xavi would be asking the club to renew it and keep him. To say categorically, one, you're right that um, both Busquets and Xavi have said things aren't decided, but frankly, it looks the right time. And particularly were they to go and win something a little bit more substantial of the three that remain to them, whether it be the Cup, the Europa League, which at the moment I see them slight second favourites to Manchester United in that time, or the league where they have a they have a good shout at the league this season. If he was to, to win one of those and leave, it would be a graceful way for a brilliant career to end. What they choose to do is is, is up in the sky. My bet is that Busquets does move on. At that point, to see to you, you're right, De Jong is now the anointed inheritor of the pivotal role. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the way that Xavi is viewing it. I think he views De Jong as an important attacking right midfielder who has the ability to link play, to go past a man, who can play pivotal when whoever is the, the, the chosen one um, is rested or suspended. And I'm not saying that he's uh, in any way, it's not even close to being a utility player, but I think one of the strengths Xavi thinks De Jong has is the ability to go box to box, the ability to go past the man. And that's not what you ask of a pivote. So I, I believe that um, if, for example, Chelsea couldn't renew Kante and he's fit or Jorginho, I think there are those and two or three others are potential signings for Barcelona. <clears throat> Asterisk, if they ever get their financial fair play sorted out with a Liga, which I wouldn't like to speculate on. Football on off the ball with Sky. All the football you love in one place across Sky Sports, BT Sport, and Premier Sports. It could be a rocky road yet. When it comes to Real Madrid's midfield, wasn't the best day at the office for Camavinga. He got the hook at half time. Um, too many wasn't available which makes you think there's a Casemiro-style hole now in Real Madrid's defence at this stage. I remember you on OTBAM back in August, you were saying if Casemiro was to leave Real Madrid, you felt that that could be the tipping of the balance in the La Liga title race. Casemiro's been quite impressive for Manchester United so far, and it seems Madrid are missing his presence. I, 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 I thought it was crystal clear that they would miss him for a thousand reasons. He's an extremely good footballer. And I think that some in Ireland and England are learning that now because maybe they didn't follow Madrid close enough. But he's a gigantic competitive presence on the pitch and in training. And I think that when when somebody like that goes, very few squads, very few units, very few coaching staffs um, hurdle that easily. There's no question whatsoever that Charmaine has been broadly impressive since he came in. His first month and a half was was nothing short of astonishing in terms of impact, maturity, understanding the play, uh, adapting quickly to the movement of Cross and Modric around him, which is not traditional movement. Modric, brilliant though he is, kind of does what he pleases in terms of this is the intelligent thing for me to do. And it isn't very structured. And these are the two men of which Ancelotti said last season, what am I going to do? Ancelotti was a Champions League winning midfielder himself. What am I going to do to tell them where they should play? I'll leave it up to them. That meant that Chalmini had, had, a, had a big new language, both in terms of 
Spanish and in terms of the football language to learn. So he he did well for a long time. In terms, he was injured. You're right. He, he wasn't quite fit, not badly injured for the Supercopa. But it's also true that just before the World Cup and just after it, he looked a little bit jaded in, in decision making and in terms of the efficacy of what he was trying to do and how often that came off, which I think is absolutely within bog standard for a relatively young player for all that he achieved at Monaco uh, and Bordeaux. It, it, he's he's in, he's still easily B plus on his season. But he isn't Casemiro. It, it's it's there was always going to be the case that Modric's World Cup campaign, however it went, however much he played, whether he came out joyful or disappointed, was going to cost him at that age. And right now, one of the things that's costing mid, the midfield at Real Madrid is that Antonio Pintus, um, the very traditional Italian fitness trainer, who is an asset, who was one of the key reasons that Madrid kept coming back to win impossible games against Paris Saint-Germain, Chelsea and Manchester City, has given them a heavy load on coming back from the World Cup with the absolutely explicit agreement with Ancelotti that these first few weeks were going to be difficult and that they just had to get through them so that the endurance training would leave them coming up with brilliant finishes during February, March and April. And at the moment, it's about whether they can get to that state of fitness. All the midfielders, um, unscathed, not, not anymore injured, because they have Villarreal on Thursday in a stadium where they lost a couple of weeks ago in the league. They've got Athletic Bilbao coming up. They've got Real Sociedad in San Mames. They've got Real Sociedad visiting Bernabeu. And then they're off to Morocco for a semi-final and potentially a final of the World Club Cup. It's incessant. The quality of rival over the next... One, two, three, four, five games is 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 huge, and they're under right now. They're under the biggest test of Carlo Ancelotti's second regime at uh, Real Madrid. Yeah, I think Jorge Valdano was speaking about that yesterday. He was saying it's just been relentless for the players. Those who went to the World Cup were back in a week and a half later to be back playing in La Liga. They've had to go to Saudi Arabia. As you said, they've got the Club World Cup on the horizon. Liverpool then, the Champions League, is going to come around remarkably quickly. So, in many ways, maybe that is the trade-off, that you go through a period of patchy form now, and Real Madrid will be hoping, like last year, that they hit form right at the business end of the season, like they did in those uh, big Champions League ties. We just think when it came to Casemiro, have you been a little bit surprised by the role he's taken at Manchester United? And that the one thing I've just noticed in watching games, Graham, he gets maybe more involved in the attack at Manchester United than he did at Real Madrid. He was very much the shield and the protector, but he's been enjoying going a little bit further forward at Old Trafford. Well, there are two things to say. I think, n- number one, the way that Ten Hag coaches, not managers, but coaches, is entirely different from Carlo Ancelotti. Ten Hag is, is very explicit in his tactical instructions. And it's not that Ancelotti is not, but he's far more, Here are our, here's our team structure, here's my ideal, here's the rivals broken down. And it's not quite Zidane, now go out and just do your stuff. But it's, it's a relatively Del Bosque-style light hand on the tiller. Ten Hag is not like that. So what you're seeing, I interpret, has to be explicit from Tanag. Secondly, let there be no doubt that in terms of athletic intensity, Manchester United's players around Casemiro are wholly different than than what he was. You know, it was a, it was an intellectual chess game that he was playing at Real Madrid, and his. Um, I, I I know you're not saying this, but he played significant roles 
in Real Madrid's attack, particularly if I'm not mistaken, in if we go back to the City game, there's a pass he plays which helps that flurry of action where Rodrigo saves the tie and then turns it round. Um and and he had attacking prowess. But I know what you said was that you see him far more committed in attack. At set plays at Real Madrid, he was always a danger. Um, whether distracting players, winning a first header or scoring um, from a header. In open play, I take it that he's got, it's more often a double pivote, which was not the case at um, Real Madrid. So I think more often, um, whether it's Fred or the mighty Scottish Scott McTominay, I think he's got players um, around him who, who will cover him differently than Modric and Cross did. And I think he's also got a role in terms of being very much team leader. I think there's a, a mentality and an attitude and a drive from Casemiro, which completely fits what he said when he left. I was so disappointed when he left because particularly as a commentator, you learn new things every week watching Casemiro. It was a it was a pure education and you, you were guaranteed to enjoy yourself. So to see him changing country at that stage, um, particularly when I was unconvinced about the behaviours and the and the culture on uh, at Carrington, made me feel a sense of loss. It turns out that not only did he time it correctly because of the changes, because of the departure of Cristiano Ronaldo, because of what Ten Hag is imposing, but he's the right guy for a, a, a rapidly changing culture in that he's enormously hungry. He, he will drag players' ideas ar- along with them on a daily basis, not just in matches. And therefore, I'm enjoying what he's reaping and I'm really enjoying it. You are clearly a student of Casemiro and of Spanish football. I don't know if we've done this on the air before, but um, I'm so enjoying the fact that Casemiro's only a good player now that he's playing in England. There's a lot of players, a lot of coaches who've discovered that he was basically a waster um, during the previous four Champions Leagues that he won. And, and you know, well, we have to admit that now he's a player, at least, finally. On a final note, can I ask you about one other Manchester United player in Alejandro Garnacho? Is there any feeling in Spain that he's one that's got away, given that it would appear his declaration is now very much towards uh, his parents' country in Argentina? Um, but this is a player who Spain had called up at underage level before. You know, I, I have to be careful now um, because I try and I try hard on off the ball not to be some uh, know-all when I'm out of my depth. And the only thing I can tell you is that when I've spoken to United staff about his emergence, they've always talked about him being Argentinian and feeling Argentinian. So my impression is that <laughs> he just like Spain lost out on Leo Messi because, you know, at, that, at the stage when he hadn't represented Argentina and it was clear that his citizenship was through in Spain, they made quiet moves directly to him to come and play for Spain. And, you know, by Germany, imagine him in, in that golden era of Spain. And he went, no chance. <laughs> and I would say that in an era when uh, Alejandro has grown up watching Messi and, and sees now Argentina as world champions, it doesn't surprise me at all. And I'll go back to what I said, that the they, the two or three staff that I've known for a long time um, at Carrington 
have always referred to him as being Argentinian. And I think that's because that's what he's been telling them too, I think. Yeah, I think he's potentially going to be a big star for Argentina. Graham, thanks a million. Pleasure. Football is brought to you here on OTB with Sky. Watch all the football you love, including the biggest Premier League games every weekend, live on Sky. Football on Off The Ball With Sky Proud partner and supporter of the Republic of Ireland Women's National Football Team This is News Talk